This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. Hello, and welcome to Marketing Trends. This is producer Ben Wilson. Today's episode features an interview with Alex Weinstein, Senior Vice President of Growth at Grubhub. On this episode, Alex talks about incrementality in marketing, marketing and incentives, and much more. Enjoy. Marketing Trends is created by the team at Mission.org and sponsored by Salesforce Pardot, B2B marketing automation on the world's number one CRM. Are you ready to take your B2B marketing to new heights? With Pardot, marketers can find and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast or click the link in the show notes. Here is your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. And we are in downtown San Francisco at Grubhub HQ here. Was this like the HQ or is this partial HQ? No, actually. So Grubhub headquarters is actually in Chicago. We have a big office in San Francisco, big office in Boston, and good presence here in San Francisco as well. Um, I'm based in Chicago. Yeah, and this is Alex. So Alex, how are you today? I am well. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we are excited to talk about Grub, uh, and we're excited to talk about incrementality in marketing. We're going to get into all that and more. But first, how did you get into marketing in the first place? Well, I actually have quite a funny story. I'm not a marketer by training. I'm a software engineer by training. Um, I started out writing a whole bunch of code, then was attracted to the marketing technology space, switched over to product management and marketing technology, became a GM in that space, and then darkness had me and I became a marketer. <laughs> um, I, I uh, Still, when I think about what my job is, it's only partially marketing. And uh, um, in my mind, growth means marketing and product and whatever it is that you need to do to get your business to be expanding. How do you view marketing? Do you think that, you know, with obviously each company is different, but marketing at Grubhub, is there an element of product, an element of marketing, an element of growth? Like how do these all kind of blend together? You know, you're the, uh, you're the SVP of growth, but do all those things fall under you? What is No, no. My primary responsibility is, is, is the marketing portion of this, but the way Grubhub business works and the way I think it's appropriate to be thinking about marketing these days and growth is how all of these pieces come together. Frankly, the best way to do so isn't just from allocating those dollars to the most most efficient channels. It's also by optimizing the rest of the network. And of course, this starts with conversion. What happens to those customers after they come in? How do we delight them through the entirety of the experience? So after they place that order, how can we maximize the chance that they come back? And that doesn't just mean the product. It also means how can we help and integrate with logistics? How can we make sure that the customers have the best experience if they they call care? All of these aspects very much predict the lifetime value of the customer. And uh, since Grubhub is very much of an LTV business, we have to think about all of these aspects if we care about growth. Yeah, and I'm I'm curious, like, what's the scope of of where Grubhub is at right now? Like, how many how many meals delivered? Uh, what what's going on? Sure, sure, sure. Well, we are a public company, so all of these stats are are public. More than five hundred thousand meals a day. We in the past twelve months had more than $6 billion worth of food sold. So um, we're quite big. And it's a delight and a privilege to be trusted by so many consumers every day to feed them uh, and by so many restaurateurs to grow their business and bring them bring them orders. It's also a big and uh, important responsibility that we take real seriously. And we appreciate it. I can tell you that because when you're sitting there and you uh, and it's a uh, minus 20 degree day in Chicago, like you went through uh, this past winter, you know, you just want to hit that app and uh, and not worry about it. Well, thank you. That's actually one of the magical things that I love about our business. Um, we have to keep all three sides of our marketplace balanced. The demand, our restaurant supply, and the number of drivers that are, uh, that are out there. Because if at any point that balance goes out of whack, driving more demand if you don't have enough drivers on the road is actually a net negative to the overall marketplace. Yep. Moreover, this balance is really fragile and changes over time. So if it starts to rain, for example, demand explodes. Um, moreover, we are truly a hyper-local business in that we can be in perfect balance in one neighborhood and then just 20 blocks to the west. That situation can be really, really different. So we have to keep that balance 
up at all times. And that's that's one of the things that I love about, about the complexity of this business. Yeah, and I just find it so fascinating that the way these type of marketplaces work that you have – like, you know, the, the, the running joke is, you know, you get into manufacturing because you, or you, you get into like creating a product because you love, you know, whatever cookies or whatever widget <laughs> it is. But what you really end up doing is predicting the weather because all <laughs> of your supply chain depends on the weather and all these things. Grubhub is no different. Uh, obviously, the weather playing a role in this. What are some of those other, you know, factors for you that influence the different kind of levers that you can pull from a marketing standpoint of creating demand around the product? Sure. There's multiple aspects there. One has to do with having the right restaurant inventory and having all of the right restaurants that our consumers want. Mm -hmm. And this means a good combination of the famous national brands, uh, beloved brands like Taco Bell or KFC, but also your neighborhood mom and pop shops, your small businesses, your nearby pizza shop that you just crave. So, we need to have all of your favorites in order to fulfill your needs as a diner. And if we do that, well, we have those diners coming back and they're with us for life. Yeah. Um, it seems like, you know, and you touched on this a little bit already, but it seems like, you know, the LTV is so critical to something like this because once you have, you know, your service du jour, uh, you're going to stick with that. Have you, is that, how do you, how did you figure that out? Yeah, well, we look at the stability of our cohorts really carefully, and you're exactly right. We're very much of an LTV business. That is, once somebody becomes a diner and places a handful of orders with us, we can, with pretty high confidence, predict that they're going to stick around and how much money we're going to make from them for years to come. And as such, because we very much care about that LTV balance versus CPA balance or CAC balance, we were able to then invest based upon the characteristics of the diners that we acquired appropriately and as such, generate profitable growth. Now, we don't just look at CPA and LTV, and that's where that concept of incrementality mm -hmm. comes in. Yeah, no, no, let's get into that. I mean, you know, you you said uh, perhaps this is how to be confident in your, in your ROI. Every marketer uh, has those three dreaded letters that they need to, uh, or maybe it's not dreaded, maybe it's something different, but those three letters that they are always thinking about you you have a spin on this about incrementality. Why is that the case? Sure. So incrementality in my mind is this idea of what would have happened anyway if I didn't do any marketing activities at all? What would have happened in my product? And here's one really simple way to think about it. Imagine there's, I don't know, Gap.com, a website that we all know. You come there and you see a big banner that says 10% off. Okay, a lot of consumers see it, and maybe a couple of days later, a lot of consumers, if you look back, have redeemed that banner. You can imagine the following conversation between a marketer and, uh, let's say, their CMO. 20% of the transactions in the last couple of days have used this banner. If we didn't have this banner, oh my God, we would lose 20% of the orders. Mm -hmm. Is that really so? Because if you look in the previous days, it's not like there were 20% fewer orders. There were a lot of people who came to the site, and they were delighted to see this, this promotion, but it's not like it made them jump from the fence and basically make the purchase. Yeah. That is, maybe there's, maybe there's 100 people who have redeemed that coupon, and out of those, only 10 have made that decision only because they saw that promotion. The other 90, they were just free riders. Yeah. But those 10 are costing you the redemptions of all the 100. As such, your incremental CPA, your incremental cost of getting those 10 customers is, is 10 times larger. I love this idea. And I think it's one of those, one of the classic like lessons on, you know, pricing is the one negotiation, negotiating without all the facts, you're not going to win the negotiation. And I think that a lot of times, like we're putting things out there into the world without really understanding what the motives are for that person, right? It's like, you know, that's why you have seasonality. That's why you have, you know, whatever it is. That's why you have new trends. You have all this sort of stuff, but yet we're just going to constantly, you know, say 10%, 10%. And if you look at our email, the email marketing, just because every single time you send an email that says 10% off doesn't mean that that's the right thing to be doing, right? No, you're so right. You're so right. If you're treating your customers as a homogenous herd yeah. that, that is behaving in the same exact way is frankly disrespectful to them. It, and, and it isn't good business either. 
that is, instead of showing every single visitor a 10% off coupon, maybe we could think which ones this coupon is going to be most incremental for. Maybe those that haven't purchased for a while and are visiting you again. Maybe those that have used coupons before. If you're able to kind of zoom in and find out the subsection for who the offer is most relevant, by definition, the incrementality will be higher on the cost side. But there's also incrementality on the revenue side. That is, in our minds, we don't just think about incremental CPA. We think about incremental LTV as well. I mean, I think about this all the time with Black Friday, where I'm like, and I'd be curious, maybe you know something about Mm -hmm. this, but like, you have all these Black Friday deals on like, let's say washers and dryers, for Mm -hmm. example, or TVs. TVs is a good one. We pretty much all know as consumers now that you can get a really good deal on a flat screen TV at the end of the year. So what is your incentive to wait, you know, to the end of the year, unless your TV broke, but you pretty much know that you can get a really cheap flat screen TV at that point in time. So it's like, This incentive that we've put forward is now something that decentivizes people from acting the rest of the year. You are so right. And if you create a habit in your consumers to expect a promotion on a certain schedule, not only are you delaying their transactions, but you're ultimately creating a less profitable business. Especially if you're in an LTV business where customers keep coming back, if you set their expectation that every Black Friday, you're going to have your house cleaning services at a major discount. Well, they're just going to wait. Yeah. They're going to wait and they will happily buy at a discount. So in my mind, discounts are very effective. You just have to use them in a personalized fashion. And instead of setting a consumer expectation that they can get a discount whenever whenever they wait for that, for that magical seasonal moment, instead, giving them a discount at a time when they're maybe not fully decided on whether they want to transact or not. Can I, can I give a counterpoint to this? And Please. I don't know if this is true or not, because I don't know their financial statements. Mm-hmm. But you look at like the Bed Bath & Beyond 20% coupon, that it, the like always send them out, right? And you can go and you can use, I think you can use like as many as you want. You have to like do all the different transactions in succession or whatever. But that's one of those things where I'd be curious to know the, the whether or not this works, but it's like the reason to go in is that you know you always have at least one coupon. Uh-huh. And their math is, hey, you know, the average transaction, people buy three things when they come to the store. They dis- If we discount one to 20%, like it gets them in the door. I'm curious, like, where, where does this, like, psychology work in, in a good way? I actually think this concept with Bed, Bed Bath & Beyond can work. I haven't seen their numbers, but I can imagine that if that 20% off coupon gets enough people off the fence, then that discount is more than paying for itself. Yeah. Moreover, if their business is a as high of a margin business as I anticipate it is, yeah, sure. then giving away 20% on a single item, if consumers buy three, is is more than good enough if uh, uh, the number of people walking through the door is is higher even by 10%, no, and 5%. It, yeah, and, and it's also the single item piece, right? Because I think the other, you know, part of this is that if a company that has an application of some sort mm-hmm. and you're constantly discounting off like the entire order or if you're in a margin or a business where you have different profit margins or whatever it is, you can get in like real trouble, like growth for the sake of growth kind of conversations and not understanding your kind of unit economics of that. You're exactly right. You got to keep in mind how much profit you're expecting to get from any customer and how much you're willing to invest into that. And LTV is wonderful if you're able to be confident in predicting that. And patience is wonderful to be able to recoup that. But it has to add up. You need to be able to with fairly high confidence say that for a cohort of diners that I'm bringing in, if I'm paying 50 bucks each to to get them in, I need to be able to, with high confidence, get those 50 bucks back in cumulative profits. Because if you don't, it it just doesn't work. So I'm curious, how do you look at this for Grubhub then? And I know you can't share like all the details here, but when you're looking at, and I'm not necessarily talking like discounting here, but just consumer behavior and when people are doing different things that you want. Like the, you know, common thought here would be everybody's hungry at, you know, six o'clock. Then we need to flood the market at six o'clock. Like how do you view 
you know, driving ROI at Grubhub? Sure. Let me give you a couple examples. One, starting from discounting, where, where we found to be quite incremental. And two, about sort of driving awareness and buying ads and sort of concentrating demand at the right time. So with discounting, there's one campaign that we do that, that works super well in sort of exactly that, that front. And this is the idea of doubling up in a single day. Um, mm-hmm. When somebody places a breakfast order, we will send him a coupon that says, hey, place a second order today for dinner uh, and save 15% off. Why do we do this? Because not a lot of people place two orders in a single day. Yeah. Uh, and we obviously send it only to people who don't do this regularly mm-hmm. uh, to kind of encourage them to to try that out. Um, and it works super well yeah. because we're able to put a seed of a new habit into their mind. Lazy Sunday, I'm down. She's, I've right. definitely done that. I've grown up twice, twice in a day, we, maybe three times. We have quite a privilege of a term, the Grubhub trifecta, yeah. um, where, where there are some folks on social media talking about about this concept. And uh, it's really quite a privilege if we are able to take such a point in people's lives. To the second part of, of, of your question about attracting attention of the consumers at the right time, of course, ideally, you want to be in front of the customers at the time when they're most likely to place an order. Uh, maybe they're heading back from a workout, or maybe they just came back from work and sort of are thinking whether to cook dinner or not. Right around that time would be really perfect, but there's also cost considerations. For example, we buy a lot of TV advertising. We're a top 200 TV advertiser by spend in the US. And we've done a whole bunch of experimentation on that front. And what we've discovered is that buying ads at prime time is not a surprise, very expensive. Yep. So even though it would be really great to show up to consumers at that time, the incremental efficacy of appearing at that time versus perhaps at different times of day that are maybe less effective on in terms of the immediate gain that we that we get, they're also dramatically cheaper. Yep. So if we're able to generate awareness during maybe non-peak ordering times, then what will happen is that the consumer will, when they're back from work at six o'clock, they'll go on Google and they'll search for food delivery and they'll see, oh, Grubhub, of course. I heard about Grubhub. Let me check that out. And that ends up working out well. Yeah. I mean, this is where you talk about like brand recall and all this sort of stuff. And I think it's it's a great point that, you know, a lot of times as marketers, we are trying so hard to be in the right place at the right time that we forget about being the most memorable, even if it's in the wrong time, especially when it's way cheaper. And, you know, we were talking, you know, before about, uh, before we started rolling here about, you know, podcasts and this idea that you don't know when the person is going to listen to on-demand audio uh, or anything on-demand. So you have to be more memorable or you have to, you know, hopefully create something in that way that it could stick with them, um, you know, with a jingle or with uh, a saying or with some creative storytelling. And I think that like that's where, because there's more opportunities like that out there, it kind of forces you to be a little creative. Now, I know you said you're a quant guy. So is creativity at odds with, uh, with the numbers here? I, I think creativity can be made so much better with the numbers. Agreed. Uh, and that's one of the things that I, that I really love about my job. I'm really passionate about this idea of feedback loops. Mm -hmm. Um, And being able to say what's working and what's not. So exactly to your point of should we be buying at prime time or not? Should we be going with a highly creative concept that is super memorable? Or should we go with something maybe a little bit more direct response? If you have a feedback loop that tells you which one is working better, your creativity can actually work better because you know what works and what doesn't. And that piece is just so core to our identity and something that allows our quants to work super well with our brand people. And as a result of this, we're able to take meaningful risks, both in terms of our creative execution and also in terms of the kind of media that we buy, the kind of activations that we pursue, because we always seek out the feedback loop first. That is, before we engage in any campaign or buy any media or pursue any partnership, we say, how are we going to know whether this thing actually moved the needle? Yeah. And we try to state that in advance. And that helps out in a big way. Ideally, we try to connect this to orders. How many incremental orders came in? But obviously, this isn't possible in every case. Yeah, uh, We've geeked out a ton. So we were able to tell how many incremental orders things like TV brings. Mm-hmm. And if you want, we can explore that a little bit. Yeah, let's get into it. I oh, mean, sure. Whatever sure. If you, I mean, I, I think we struggle to find a lot of marketers that really 
truly understand TV that are outside of like CPG and pure brand plays. So I think because this is somewhere in the middle there that it's it's a great, great case. So yeah, have at it. Sure, sure. About two years back, we had an intuition that we were operating on in terms of how to drive awareness of our product. About two years back, when you asked an average consumer, give me a couple food delivery brands, they would name pizza brands. Yeah. Um, so we very much needed to create awareness of, of, of the sector and awareness of our brand. So we were buying a whole bunch of digital video as means of generating that awareness. And the intuition was quite simple. People who buy food delivery are early adopters of technology. Yep. Because food delivery online is still a fairly small portion of the overall food delivery segment. Yeah, just like one-to-one. -one. You're like, hey, young people are doing this, they're online. Exactly. People who do this, they are cord cutters, obviously. Yep. They don't watch any boring, stodgy, old cable TV. What do you mean? They're all on Hulu and YouTube, and, and that's how our, our intuition went. And frankly, this intuition still very much makes sense to me to this day. Yeah. It's just that right about two years back, we were able to organize some tests to be able to, with confidence, say, what is the incremental CPA of investing into digital video versus investing into the very boring cable television? Mm -hmm. And it turned out that the boring cable TV is actually dramatically more effective in terms of the incremental cost of a new customer and the value that this ultimately brings to us. So when we did these experiments, and I can tell you more about how, we discovered this and we were able to then reallocate a meaningful portion of our marketing spend from that digital video over, over to TV. And from a tiny TV advertiser, we, over the course of the following 12 months, ramped up to be one of the top 200 US advertisers and our growth accelerated dramatically. I think it's really interesting because the idea of TV advertising, the reason why, I mean, it works so well is because there's one thing that's going on and maybe you're on your phone or maybe you're, you know, talking to your spouse or cooking or whatever it is that you're doing, it's still on and it's still there in front of you. And even if you're not necessarily staring directly at it, there's probably not as much. I think the assumption was like, oh, people change the channel and they go to the other room. But a lot of those same assumptions were never made about like digital video. Hmm. Is like the thing that you're like slamming your finger on the phone to try to get off of your phone is not exactly a uh, it's not exactly a, a, a flawless experience either. And I just kind of feel like when something is new. There's not really the scrutiny of like, it's a lot of upside conversation, but not a lot of like downside conversation. And the truth is we're all used to TV ads because we'd seen them for a long, long time. So you have that as well. I'm just curious to your thoughts. No, I think that's all very much fair. If we're able to kind of zoom ourselves out from the immediate sexiness of a new medium yep. and try to be as objective as we can and create true feedback loops that don't attach our self-worth to the success of the new media and this new, I don't know, TikTok ad that we're launching or something mm -hmm. like that, right? And it's okay to have an experiment that doesn't work. If you were able to create a culture where true experimentation is possible and people's egos aren't hurt if their experiment doesn't work, then you truly can learn and you truly can spin on a dime and learn that maybe your digital video ads are not as effective and as such reallocate without the core identity of the people making these decisions being being hurt. Yeah. And the, the assumption, and I think that so many marketers are looking for new avenues and kind of instead of looking backwards sometimes and saying, you know, I mean, if you if you went to a conference and you spoke about how your print ads are crushing, like probably not exactly in a headline, right? I mean, maybe you would now, maybe it's so probably out, right. It's, it's so counterculture, right? Yeah. It's so counter <laughs> counterculture, yeah. But I know, I think that that's a great point. And especially when you're saying like, hey, we want to target early adopters and all these sort of people. It's like, well, early adopters probably know about you know, food delivery apps sort of a thing. So anyway, sorry, continue the, continue the, the, uh, how you did this for, for TV. Sure. Well, we were trying to get as quant of a, of a feedback loop as we could. So what we did was we organized this concept of sister markets. We took a couple, uh, a couple markets that are similar. Um, let's say Seattle and Portland, right? Similar demographics, similar weather, weather, remember, very important for food delivery. Yeah. And we basically said, we're going to keep one constant and the other one we're going to bombard with the stimulus that, that we're trying to study. And when I say bombard, I mean seriously explode your spend on the medium. And you can do so with TV, you can do this with billboards, you can do this with digital video, and then observe what happens to the totality of your demand both orders and new customers. 
And your last click attribution methods are all going to say that, oh my God, SEM is killing it. Mm-hmm. Of course, SEM has nothing to do with it. Yeah. Uh, SEO is totally killing it. Yeah. But you know, you know what's really going on. So you will be able to, if you spent enough, see this change from space. And you will see the step function in your orders and in, in new customers when you turn this on and the step down when you turn this off. And the totality of this incremental gain is basically the benefit that your, your stimulus was able to drive. Mm-hmm. You know exactly how much you spent. You know what it would have been since you have that control market. And from that, you can calculate the incremental CPA or incremental CAC. If you do this enough times, you are able to grow statistical confidence in your measurements. And then as you're getting a little bit more sophisticated in it, of course, instead of taking a pair of markets, you do a fancy machine learning system that models what would have been with higher confidence. Then from that, you can calculate those incremental CACs. How do you find like a statistically relevant amount of data to like test these things? Sure. There's there's a couple of things in play. One is you need to have a big enough business that, yeah. that there's that there's enough of a inflow, right? If you have a small number of visitors coming onto your site or a small number of transactions, you, you just won't be able to generate enough signal. You also need to spend enough, yeah. right? So you need to have a powerful enough baseline activity and a powerful enough stimulus that you're bringing in that moves that activity up in a way that's visible from space. That's the two requirements. I think... Um and I, I'm curious to this. I, I would imagine that because a you're an application, and b because you're an app, and you have website plus app, and like app downloads, and mm-hmm. then you can geolocate because your app obviously mm-hmm. um, is part of the whole thing. I'd imagine your amount of data that you can pull about your customers would be a lot more just like a lot deeper levels than the average. Like if you were doing this with like a CPG product that doesn't have an app, doesn't have like a robust website or content about it, or maybe doesn't, I'm, or maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. No, you're totally right. Being a direct-to-consumer brand has massive advantages in, in that you can actually learn from your consumers directly. You can learn from their behavior. It's much more difficult to do this if you're operating through a reseller. But yeah. I know really smart people who were able to figure exactly that out too. Totally. Uh, even though, even though they, don't, they don't have a direct-to-consumer brand, right? And the way you may be able to do this is by working with your reseller partner and organizing a similar set of tests super hard. Yeah, well, and the reason why I was saying that, it just seems like your speed, your kind of like flash to bang on these campaigns seemed like it was really fast rather than like if you're working with potentially, you know, a bunch of different agencies plus a reseller plus like you just kind of like layer in amounts of complexities and it seems like you're just speed to knowledge is going to be a lot quicker. And then you can also follow through LTV on all of your, all of those customers anyways. So you know that like, Hey, you know, after the scene from space campaign that we did in Portland, we know that a bunch of those people are really sticky because they're covered in rain or something like that. <laughs> um, yeah, that rain is quite magical, right? Yeah. Uh, you are totally right. This this connection to the customer that being a D2C brand allows you to have is a very powerful competitive advantage and is something that allows us to develop a relationship with the consumer and actually get to know them. And as such, give them recommendations that are relevant for them. Maybe give them a coupon when they're in doubt. Offer them a new restaurant that opened in their neighborhood that has the kind of cuisine that they love. Yeah, Things like that are only possible because consumers have entrusted us to feed them. Uh, yeah. And they're ordering on our platform or through that, telling us what what they like. It is so much more difficult to do that if you have a reseller. You you touched upon one real important piece to me, this idea of how quickly are you learning. I just I wanted to harp on it for a second. This, this idea of velocity of learning is a really, really important thing for us culturally uh, and just for me in terms of identity. Mm-hmm. When I think about company success, the thing that that predicts where a company will be or where where a person individually will be is how quickly are they actually able to learn, learn new things, genuinely new things. Not should our checkout button be green or blue, but should we try this systematically new approach? Should we work with this partner? Should we try this brand new business model? These big fundamental things, how quickly are you able to discover them? And if you are, especially if you are in a rapidly growing industry, you got to figure that out because uh, because that will determine whether you're able to understand what your consumers truly want. So how do you look for innovation? How do you look for new things and new ideas like that? Sure. Um, I am a really 
lucky in that my team comes up with all sorts of ideas and uh, in that culturally what we do is take risks and try stuff. And in most cases, uh, uh, my initial reactions to, to these ideas are, oh, my God, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. But luckily, my team is way smarter than me and they teach me things. You know how we were talking about TikTok a little bit earlier. I actually, yeah. we've had really positive experiences with TikTok. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, and this is a big learning for me. Somebody on our paid social team came to me and said, hey, uh, we're interested in trying TikTok ads. And I looked at them and I said, uh, how could this possibly work? The <laughs> audience is super young. They don't have any disposable income. How in the world would, would this even conceptually work? Luckily, we still tried. Those people all have parents. Those people all have parents. Um, some older people are on TikTok as well. And through these experiments, we discovered that TikTok actually was able to generate incremental new customers for us at a pretty efficient rate. Surprise, surprise. And by not going with our gut and sort of this intuition that turned out to be wrong, we were able to genuinely learn something. And of course, don't bet the farm on that learning. Yeah. Don't spend $10 million learning whether TikTok works or not. But if you're able to learn quickly and cheaply, you can genuinely pivot on a diamond, learn things like that TV test that, that I shared. How do you look at like content creating things versus buying ad space. Like a lot of stuff that we've talked about has been uh, like inventory based. And Uh like, I'd imagine you all do a lot of retargeting. So like, how do you look at like bringing new things into the world? Sure. For us, content has a lot to do with bringing in brands that our consumers really Mm -hmm. love. So we partner with awesome folks like Shake Shack or folks like Taco Bell that are beloved brands with dozens of years of uh, uh, consumer love. Yeah. Um, And we create things together. And those things range from just simple promotions like uh, free Cheesy G delivered for free uh, (laughs) to really cool activations. Yeah. And that's like, I mean, it's kind of a spin on partner marketing. It seems like it's, you're potentially at a a position where... uh, does that create a little FOMO when brands who like, hey, well, how come we're not doing something together? Uh, or do are they kind of like, well, you're doing that with them. Like, you know, oh, you're promoting this chicken sandwich and not ours. Chicken sandwich is so hot right now. That's topical stuff. Or my team is laughing at me. But yeah, I'm curious. Like, how does how does partner work, marketing work? We love everybody's chicken sandwiches. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that, us that, too. Right? That's the magical thing about being a marketplace. We can only work if our partners on our network are successful. Mm-hmm. Irrespective of how big the partner is that we're working with, that partner realizes that a consumer comes in to Grubhub not to order just their food. Nobody wants to have Taco Bell every single day. Nobody wants to have Shake Shack every single day. It's the variety that gets... To? Right? But I, I mean, have maybe. to admit, I love that. Anyway, okay. um, but it's that variety that gets them to, to keep coming back. And the variety is what we're able to bring to, to every one of these partners. So we do we do awesome deals and awesome activations with many, many, many of our partners. And they love it. Have you worked with influencers at all? We have mixed success, I'd yeah. say, today. And the reason for this is our feedback loops so far haven't fully proven to us that these are as efficient as some of the other means that, that we've found so far. Some really cool things that we have been able to do have to do with esports. Yeah, because um, because I mean you're sitting in front of the computer That's and you're playing. It's awesome, right? Test. Yeah. Oh yes, and and we've been able to work with teams and individual players, and it's it's super relevant. They love it. It's authentic. It's the kind of a product that they need. If we're able to do a great job for them, it becomes organic. And in so many cases, we see streamers just order Grubhub and then talk about it. Yeah, right? totally. This perfect, very natural fit. Uh, so this area has worked really well for us. You've talked about, you know, creating the right incentives and kind of not chasing, you know, metrics that give you wrong incentives uh, or, you know, chasing the sexy marketing that you kind of just feel like you might want to do. Why do you think that marketers chase things they shouldn't? He says pretty loaded question, but yeah, um, you're the guy to answer. So. Sure. Um, well, one question I like to ponder is, have you seen a marketer that would show up to their boss and say, please take away my budget? Yeah, totally. Or a marketer that would say, uh, hey, my channel is totally not working. Please just take away t- t- take away all the money and, and give it to somebody else. Uh, it just doesn't happen because we attach so much of our identity as marketers to the thing that we do, right? 
I'm a big believer of setting a culture that allows people on the ground and anybody who, who's executing to actually care about the bigger thing. And when that bigger thing is about learning, when that bigger thing is about overall company success, you're able to actually make things work. And let me give you a concrete example of a classical setup that so many companies often fall into and why the incentives actually are quite misaligned in there. We already talked about a line marketer who, frankly, doesn't want to have their job go away. And they have this assumption that if they say that their channel isn't working, oh, my God, they're going to get fired. Usually wrong, but nevertheless, that's the assumption in their head, right? And the more the more money I control, the bigger my job is. So I should be asking for more money for my channel, right? That marketer usually works with an agency. How does that agency work? Based upon the size of the budget that you're spending on that specific channel, they take a cut. So do they have an incentive to tell you that their channel isn't working? Probably not. They're probably not actively nefarious either if you have a good agency. But let's face it, they're able to pay their bills because you're buying something through that channel. Now, if you go a little bit further, that agency is probably buying from a publisher. And that publisher might be one of our top two. Is one of our top two publishers particularly interested in telling you that whatever you've been buying, they're not working? Also, no, because that's how they pay their bills. So you have this entire chain that unless you specifically design for it, has disincentives to do the right thing. Yep. Is there anyone you can convince in that chain or maybe anyone you can influence as the company leader or as a leader of the marketing group to change that? Yes, you can. The person that's working for you, the marketer that works with the agency, how would you do it? Well, set their incentives not based upon their channel, but based upon the overall company growth and set their incentives based upon the number of things that they learn per unit of time. And if you're able to truly make them believe that their self-worth, their importance to the company is not connected to their marketing budget or to their specific channel's budget, but connected to the efficacy of their spend, the LTV that they're able to generate, the incremental CPAs, well, they will pay attention. And they are, especially in a smaller company, inextricably connected in their destiny to how well the overall company does. And if you're able to help them understand how what they do connects to the bigger good, and they see their role as the magnifier of that as opposed to just the magnifier of their marketing budget, yeah, I mean, your chances are better. No, I totally agree. And I think that part of the reason that we get really stuck in this sort of thing is like when you have uh, marketers that, are, that aren't cross-functional. Because if you're not at least a little bit trained on the other types of marketing within the organization and probably hopefully on like sales or product or whatever type of organization that you have, then it's like you get very narrow-minded and very siloed and like, well, like I'm the paid ads gal, so I need to we need to have great paid ads. And it's like, in reality, it's like maybe the paid ads, you know, gal needs to also be the content marketing or the social media or the influencer or partnerships or whatever it is. But when, like you said, when each of those people have to defend their position, you're not really defending, you know, the company in the whole. It's like you as a talented person are supposed to be able to, you know, be able to speak truth to power. And if you're just kind of saying like, Hey, we just need more paid ads because this is what I do for a living. It's like that's it's not uh, it's not aligned for sure. I love it. I uh, I actually have a story to share on that front. As there were a couple of folks on my team that that very much inspired me on that front. We have a portion of the team that cares about specific markets. As you can imagine, yeah. uh, there are folks who who are sort of channel specific. I'm trying to make SEM great across across everywhere, but you can make SEM wonderful, but a specific market can still be behind. Yep. And since we're a network effect business, we have to care about specific markets, right? So we had a couple of people assigned to improve a specific market because that market wasn't doing so hot. And they were on the marketing team. So what the very natural thing to do for them, I was thinking, was to, you know, invent some ads. Think about that. They saw their job as much more than that, luckily for all of us. So they went on the site. They kind of explored our selection, our experience, the whole thing. And they came back to me and they said, hey, um, I'm kind of looking through all the restaurants that we have in this city. And I'm not seeing a lot of food photography. Hmm. And um, just menus from restaurants that I've never eaten before. They don't make me particularly hungry. So I have an idea. Let me try something. Let me just organize some photo shoots. Let me call 100 restaurants from here and let me get photographers in there and see if we can add some photos in there. Let's organize a classical product A-B test, see what happens to conversion on all those 100 restaurants and see if maybe it's worth it. 
I'm like, okay, try it. That's cool. So they organize an AP test. They do all of those photos, call all of those restaurants, stay on the phone like mad to try to schedule all those appointments. It all happens. And lo and behold, it turns out that adding those photos, surprise, surprise, very effective for conversion. We look at efficacy of spending dollars on those photo shoots versus buying some of the ads. And it turns out that those photo shoots are much better. I'm like, wow, that's amazing. Uh, they say, no, 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 you don't understand. There's, this is just the beginning. We're going to do this very differently. I'm like, okay. They say, we are going to, instead of calling and scheduling these photo shoots, which is logistically such a pain in the butt, we are going to get a photo studio rented in a couple of corners of the city. And we will just order food from these restaurants. And we're going to have our driver pick up that food, deliver that to our photo studio, have a food stylist make that food better and take photos. My guys, guys, this makes no sense at all. Have you ever seen delivered food? It doesn't look good. Yeah. Plus, it's going to be expensive. What are you talking about? They're like, no, no, no just give, give it a shot. And you're give like, shot. you're like, you guys are hungry. I, I know it. <laughs> right. I was totally expecting that they're going to eat all of it. Now, this was happening right after the TikTok story. So at that point, I, I, I was like, okay, okay. I, I'm just accustomed to being wrong at this point. So I just might as well. So, uh, so, so they do it. And it turns out that this is a much more effective way of accomplishing the same task. And remember, this is marketers who were doing this. This is not their job. They're not operations people. And what I was expecting them to do was to buy some Facebook ads. And what they ended up doing was renting space and hiring a photographer. Uh, but the downstream effect of their activity was massively accelerating growth in that city. So that was just so super inspiring for me because this, this really was... Uh, the highlight of what it means to me to be doing growth. Uh, you do whatever it takes to accelerate downstream conversion, to accelerate downstream growth. You don't just buy ads. You don't buy eyeballs. You do whatever it takes to get whatever dollars you're spending to be most effective, to get the customers that you got in to come back as often as you can. Yeah, especially in a marketplace business where who the people are who are delivering this, the food is part of the story. The actual place, the founders of the restaurant are part of the story. The servers at the restaurant are part of the story. Where the food was sourced from is part of the story. There's so many elements in that. And it's your job to convince people to make an order. Well, there's a million things that go into that. And like you look at every single facet of, I mean, how many, how many things do you see now that are you know, sustainably sourced that is all over their packaging and hopefully it's all legit, uh, but that are, you know, doing things in a sustainable way that it is part of that brand now. And it's like, there's so many different things like that, that if you're a creative marketer, you can tell those stories in a new way. And it's not just like, well, these seven ads don't work or like we split tested 50 ads and none of them work. It's like, what are you sending them to? Right? Like, are you sending them to a dimly lit, you know, photo, someone taking a selfie with, you know, some, some, some chow mein? I'm hungry. <laughs> what time is it? <laughs> I love it. Totally. It's our job to be thinking through the entirety of the experience, both in terms of differentiation of our story, how to make it more memorable, but also for the product itself. Yeah. And thinking with the customer's eyes, looking at it with the customer's eyes. So last question before we get into our lightning round here. I'm curious, how do you view marketing for the different sides of the marketplace? Because this is something that, you know, we see and really other ways too, because you have talent, you're marketing talent, presumably to get, you know, the most talented people at Grubhub. Like what are the different kind of ways you view the, the quote unquote, like, you know, the markets or the people you're trying to reach? Are those all under one big marketing budget that you, you know, you do separately? Are there brand plays? How do you do that? Sure. And we have to market to all three of our constituents, mm -hmm. to our consumers, to restaurateurs, and to drivers. And our brand has to speak to all three of them. So we are very carefully crafting our messages so that they make sense to all three of them. Now, the way we speak to our restaurateurs is quite different than the way we speak to our diners, because what they come to us for is very, very different. Mm -hmm. We have more of the attention span of our restaurateurs. The restaurateurs rely on us to bring them incremental orders and, frankly, incremental revenue. Mm -hmm. So we're able to spend time with them and kind of explain how they could do better both on our platform and just generally as, as, as business owners. And we're able to give them insights that allow them to do all of that. With our consumers, we help them 
feed themselves. Yeah. Uh, and m- maybe our interaction is not as in-depth and maybe we don't have an account advisor that has uh, a call with them every other day telling them what they should order. B- but instead, this is all about personalization at scale. So there are some commonalities on the brand front, meaningful differences in terms of what is it the communi- that we communicate and on the execution side of this in terms of the channel execution, right? Folks who buy SEM, folks who program and send emails, there's meaningful commonalities as well. You know, and it's just, it's so interesting to me because each of those, you know, constituents have a different reason for why, you know, they're on the platform. And it's like the guy who just wants to spend a few more minutes a day with his daughter and not have to drive and get food and, you know, wants to spend that 30 minutes watching Peppa Pig or whatever, whatever it is. Um, uh, or, you know, the driver who wants to make, you know, some money on the side or do a full time or whichever it is. And I think that being able to speak in all of those languages as a brand can be kind of tough and it might get like lost in translation of who you're talking to. How do you kind of sit Segment those folks. Well, a few pieces. One is whenever we do broad awareness advertising, we speak to our consumers, but we speak in such a way that makes sense to all of the other parties, right? We know that our restaurateurs or our prospective restaurateurs see our ads and they see that we're a platform that a lot of consumers and other restaurateurs are, are trusting. So when they see a follow-up from our salesperson or or an email from us, if they're one of our leads, they know the context and they know sort of the foundations of the brand, which of course today have to do with variety and very much value. It's pretty, so are you, are you helping, you know, it's, I, I always think this is so interesting when you're in like a small business marketplace because so much of what makes life hard for a small business is all the other stuff than what they're doing. Like for a restaurant, it's all the other things. Like even though you're helping them with the revenue uh, and, and placing orders, really it's all the other stuff that they're probably going home and worried about at night because they know they're great at making food or whatever it is. How do you help in in kind of those ways or, or support um, the businesses like outside of of just kind of what the core use of the app. Sure. Well, demand gen is a really important part of their business. Yeah. Uh, so many of the restaurants, small business restaurants, close within the first year because of the fixed cost variable cost ratio. And getting found is just yeah. A- exactly. So if we're able to bring in incremental orders, that is at the very top of the list for the restaurateurs, can Grubhub bring them that that incremental revenue? So we want to make sure that we knock that out of the park. After that come other things that we could do to help them be better. Let me give you some intuitions behind this. Because of our scale, we're able to be advisors for the restaurateurs and not just a transaction platform that brings orders. Mm-hmm. Let me give you let me give you one example. Let's say a restaurant has been on our platform for a couple of months and we're able to see some patterns. And we notice that every Wednesday night, whenever somebody orders fries, they leave a worse review. Well, maybe we can tell the restaurateur that on Wednesday nights, whoever is working um, needs a little bit of extra training on how to do fries right. Is this helping us? Yes. But is this helping the restaurateur on the platform and off the platform? Because you betcha that there are people who are coming in in store and are not loving those fries. Of course it is. So this is much more than just the transactional relationship. This is actually advising them on how to be better at their core craft. And you are so right. This aspect of doing everything other than cooking is super hard. So we try to make that better. And we've been expanding in this direction quite a bit, right? Loyalty is one of those, yeah. those other aspects that, that we've invested in quite, quite significantly. We've been helping restaurateurs get those customers to come back and get the new ones to, to try out their food. And they love it. It's real important to them. I love it. This is great. Let's get into the lightning round. Oh, sure. These questions are fast and easy, just like B2B marketing automation with Pardot. You can go to pardot.com slash podcast to learn more about marketing automation on the world's number one CRM. That is Salesforce. Fast and easy questions. Lightning round style. Alex, are you ready? No. Oh, man. All right. That's it for today. No, I'm just kidding. You have to sit here and do it anyways. It's the implicit obligation being on the show. Lightning round. What is your favorite one-day getaway in the Chicago area? Mm-hmm. Seattle weekend. How's that for a Chicago getaway? I like it. Favorite thing to cook or eat? Lasagna. I can't let you play favorites around here, but I really do want to ask. 
about your favorite restaurant, but I'm going to hold that back. How about favorite show or podcast that you've watched or listened to recently? This American Life. Hidden talent or passion? Play the guitar. Best advice for first-time SVP of growth? Be humble and actually try to learn something as opposed to trying to prove that you are very smart. What question do you never get asked that you wish you were asked more often? How to balance the intangible with uh, uh, the immediate work, the relationships with uh, the actual work. Yeah, how do you do that? Putting relationships at the very top of the list. That is, the immediate fire will always subside and you will not remember it six months later ever. Uh, but you'll remember if somebody hurt you or if somebody really supported you when you really needed it. Uh, relationships last for years past jobs or companies or anything. And if you're able to be genuinely helpful to people, you will feel like you're living a more meaningful life. Great advice. Alex, thanks so much for coming on. Appreciate it. Any final thoughts? Anything to plug? No, no. Thank you so very much for having me. I thoroughly enjoyed this. Thank you. Awesome. Me too. Take care. Cheers, Ian. Thanks for listening to this episode of Marketing Trends. Marketing Trends is created by the team at mission.org and sponsored by Salesforce Pardot. World-class marketers use Pardot to generate and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI at every stage of the sales cycle. Empower your marketing team to become revenue-generating superheroes and let Pardot's data analysis keep an eye on the bottom line. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast or click on the link in the show notes. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.